Not too long ago, a man who is considered by some to be an influential Jewish rabbi declared, his name is Ovadia Yosef, he declared that it is sinful on the Sabbath for one to pick their nose. Because if you pick your nose, you may accidentally trim your nose hair. And trimming your nose hair would constitute work, and work on the Sabbath is forbidden. I kid you not. Thankfully, for those of you who enjoy picking your nose on Saturday... Another leading rabbi has declared that it is okay for people to pick their nose on Shabbat. (laughs) Busted. (laughs) It's easy for us, I think, to laugh and say how silly, how ridiculous, and for us to say with a measure of confidence, rightly or wrongly, Surely this is not what Moses meant when Moses said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Easy for us to say, and yet for thousands of years the Jews have struggled in an attempt to be faithful to God, in an attempt to keep the Sabbath, trying to define what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work. I remember not that many years ago, my daughter Natalie, when we were in, I think staying by the, I think it was a hotel by the Dead Sea, and she wasn't with me, she was with some other ladies in the church, a couple of you who are here, and you protected her, thankfully, but my daughter Natalie had the audacity to press the elevator buttons on Friday night, which is considered Shabbat, and she got chewed out by a German Jew, and what she did understand him to say was, you stupid kindergartner, because pressing the elevator buttons on Sabbath is a sin, because it's work. Again, we say, surely that's not what Moses had in mind, and yet, read this the best you can, if they're trying to be faithful to the Lord, trying to obey the commands, what exactly constitutes work? What is it? How do we do this? And the people of God seem to get themselves in this predicament where they end up becoming expert at missing the point. And I know that they, and then we, because we do this kind of thing too, even if it's not with Sabbath, become expert in the name of faithfulness at times at missing the point. In John chapter 5, we see that the Jewish people Jesus is engaging over a Sabbath debate are expert at missing the point. If you would look with me at the very end of John 5, we're going to look at the beginning of John 5 today, but if you look at the end, you'll see what I mean. John 5 goes together, we'll just start it this morning, but it goes together as a unit and we really can understand the beginning better if we understand the end and what Jesus says and and how this this point-missing expertise happens. Oftentimes in in the name of faithfulness. Verse 45 says in John 5, 
this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Don't think I will be the one, context, on judgment day, who will accuse you of being guilty. Don't think that that will be me. Keep reading then. There is one who accuses you, Moses. That's the giver of the Sabbath, Moses. On whom you have set your hope. Verse 46 says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, and Jesus is implying and teaching that they don't, how will you believe my words? That's where I came up with this expert, devout, committed, point missing. And if they were so good at it, because they're trying to be faithful, we are fools to think who are trying to be faithful that we can't become expert at missing the point. So, we're going to start John 5 today. First 18 verses, we're going to artificially cut it off. It all goes together, but it's a, it's a controversy. Controversy, by the way, in John 5, it's heating up, okay? We're going to hear things about now wanting to kill Jesus because of these things. Okay, so things are really heating up. There's a controversy because of the Sabbath. But what happens is controversy leads to Jesus not backing down. If anything, he, he ratchets it up. And, and, and creates more controversy. But what that does is, is it provides him opportunity to explain who he is. Okay? And, and make sure everyone knows who he is. Which becomes controversial as well, but it also becomes the key to understanding salvation. So, first 18 verses is what we're going to look into today. Then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I love it that the Lord Jesus is called our Sabbath, our rest. Um, and so it's fitting for us, even looking at a Sabbath kind of text, to remember we're resting in the Lord because He does all of our efforting for us, and so we rest in Him. But let's go ahead and jump in, looking at verses 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So there's our setting. The way the grammar is set up, it's an undesignated amount of time. Okay? There's been some time passing. We don't even know how much time has passed. But now is the time where Jesus goes back up to Jerusalem. Okay? He was there for the cleansing of the temple. We saw that in chapter 2. And now he is back because there's a festival. It doesn't say which one it is. Uh, some believe it's the uh, tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. But for whatever reason, he's there for the feast. And that means the city's going to be filled with people, lots of action, lots of things happening. And here in particular, in Jerusalem, within the city walls, you have the Pool of Bethesda. Pool of Bethesda is close to the temple, okay? Um, the, you can go there today where the site is and you can see the remains of the remains. 
what remains there, uh, it would be where St. Anne's Church is. I think it's to the north and to the east, just a little bit of the temple uh, within the city. It's kind of a cool site. If you've been to Israel and you don't remember, you've probably been there. Um, because it's a place that everyone goes to go and see, oh, John chapter 5. Here are the pools. The, the roof isn't there anymore, the colonnades. Uh, the water isn't there other than what's been caught by rainwater or something like that. Um, but this is where they took the sheep. This is where they took the sheep before they took the sheep to the temple. Um, one historian says, uh, this is not where devout people would want to be uh it would be this isn't if you're a sophisticated person you don't want to enter in that area where the animals are and yet nevertheless that's where jesus is the specific quote i had was the upper class and those wishing to be ritually pure would have avoided this area but not jesus so with that in mind let's go ahead and look at verse five one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. He doesn't say yes, but he says yes. And tradition taught, tradition taught that the, the pools had the power at certain times, the magical kind of power to bring healing. So that's what this man wants. There's no biblical evidence for this actually being the case. But this is what the people thought. When the waters moved, maybe because of the spring, because of the fluctuation of the water, whatever it was, when that happened, you needed to get in and you needed to get in quickly because opportunity is over. And so this man figured if he could get in and if he could get in at the right time, perhaps he's been in before, but he's not, but he hasn't been healed. So the conclusion is, I've got to get in at the right time and then I'm going to be healed. So this man seems to be trapped, well, he is trapped by his physical limitations, no doubt. He seems to also be trapped by his superstition. So we see the man's need. The man's need is real. It's genuine. And now Jesus takes action. And does he ever? How about verse 8? Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. The man says, pick me up, Jesus, and put me in at the right time. Jesus doesn't lift a finger. Jesus doesn't do what the guy asks. He doesn't lift a finger. What Jesus does instead is Jesus speaks. And it's done. It's remarkable. 38 years no walking, therefore 38 years of atrophy. And Jesus speaks and he walks. It's an undeniable miracle. 
with a word he gets up. Two words, actually. Get up. So let me ask you, based on what we've seen so far, what should we conclude about Jesus? We can conclude that He's kind, He's merciful, He's gracious, He's unique, He's powerful. But we can also conclude, a little bit more sophisticated here, I don't want to downplay any of those things, but we can also conclude that this is a sign that He's Messiah, Mashiach, that He's the one. He's the one Israel's been waiting for. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the one who can heal people because Messiah is going to come and bring many things, but He's going to bring healing unexplainable, supernatural, as the restorer, he's going to bring healing. Just a couple of texts taken from the Old Testament that might help you see this and connect some dots. Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's reconciliation, okay? It's ultimate deliverance. Jeremiah 33, verse 6, Behold, I will bring uh, to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. And I, I commend to you our study from last week because we spent a little bit of time uh, off the beaten path trying to put pieces together when it comes to understanding healing and Jesus when he came to earth proving that he really had the power to do these things. But ultimate healing is not for us until he returns. We got into that last week. I won't redo it this week. But let's make sure we see that Jesus is Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the the Christ, the healer, the restorer. Let's also conclude something else about Jesus from our text. And that's that Jesus is controversial. He's controversial. Not for controversy's sake, like I like to be sometimes, and like some of you like to be sometimes. But he's controversial so that people can, can, get, can get rocked and unsettled uh, for, uh, out of their wrong thinking about God and their wrong thinking about themselves and their wrong thinking about Him. And so he's controversial. We know he's controversial based upon what we just read. Look again at verse 8 and maybe draw some lines. Jesus said to him, get up. Here we go. Notice those next four words. Take up your bed. That's hugely controversial. Take up your bed. It's not hugely controversial in and of itself, but you're already seeing where I'm going. When Jesus says to this man, he could have just said, you're healed. But he says, take up your bed and walk, but then look what it says in verse 9, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, here we go, that day was the Sabbath. Controversy, Jesus is picking a fight. Take up your bed, that day is the Sabbath. Dun, 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 right? Somebody's going to have some splaining to do. Risky, edgy, 
really pushing things, dropping the gauntlet, however you want to say, that it's on now. Jesus didn't have to do it that way. He didn't have to say it that way. But John, our narrator, is careful to write down, it's the Sabbath. That's where I get the dun, 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 dun. This is risky. There's going to be some serious action going on because of that. But the controversy will provide opportunity. And the opportunity will, that will provide more controversy, but then it will bring clarity. Verse 10 says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Notice the irony in all this. They said to the man who had been healed, 38 years, right, of atrophy and inability. To the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You're like, it's so easy for us to see this. He's walking. They're not saying, we rejoice with you. Who is it who has this unrivaled power? Take us to him. No, it's confrontation. It's religious police mode. Verse 11 says, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's not me, right? He's doing an Adam here. Right? It wasn't me. It was her. It was the woman that you gave me. I, I, I just obeyed the guy who healed me. I, this isn't me. I didn't mean to do this. Right? It was the man. But do notice it didn't happen because of the water. It happened because of the man. It's exciting. Verse 12 says, They asked him, Who is the man? I like all the man references. The man, that man. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is verse 14. And said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Got to pause there for a moment. That's kind of a out of left field. So Jesus finds him. Jesus is pursuing this whole controversy thing, by the way. But he does say, let's just pause for a, a moment or two. Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Now, what we're going to see next week and the next week is Jesus is going to go on to talk about judgment. Judgment, coming judgment. Judgment from God and the, the Father gives it to the Son. Jesus is not only the healer, deliverer, Savior, He's also the judge. And He does say to this man, stop sinning. Because there is something worse than misery in this life, I think is the intent. The man knows what it's like to be miserable, 38 years worth. But Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity to say, there's something worse. Future judgment. People who say, well, my life has been a living hell, don't know what they're talking about, in other words. So stop sinning. Stop sinning. I just jotted down a few things worth noticing here. The first one is, there's something worse than t- 
temporary physical suffering. Another thing I wrote down is, Jesus is not anti-law. And this actually is important. Jesus is not anti-law. Don't, don't misread when Jesus supposedly violates the Sabbath. I don't think he does. I don't think he calls the guy to violate the Sabbath. I don't think that's the case because Jesus is not anti-law or he never would have said to the man, stop sinning. He wouldn't have. Oh, by the way, 1 John defines it for us. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. That's what sin is. So let's not conclude that Jesus shows up just to say, hey, do whatever you want to do. Those dumb Jews, they're trying to be faithful to God. No, the problem is with all this extra added stuff and rules and regulations and legalism. But Jesus isn't, if you want to use the big fancy theological term, he's not an antinomian. He's not anti-law. Or he never would have said to this guy, stop sinning. He just wouldn't have. Now also, reading in between the lines in light of the big picture here, that tells us there's no way that what Jesus said to this man was an encouragement to, vi- to truly violate the law of Moses. A third thing I jotted down just to take away from this statement, stop sinning. Jesus preaches the law to this guy. It's fascinating to me. Stop sinning. That's not the gospel. It's true. It's right. That's not the gospel. It's an important thing. Hey, buddy, there's judgment to come. Stop sinning so you're not judged by God. Would that be true? Yeah. Would that be good? Yeah. Is the guy going to do it? No. Does it provide an opportunity for him to see his need for a substitute Savior? Yeah. Yeah. It's just fascinating to me. At this point in time, he has to get the guy ready, and who knows what's going to happen later, but he says, stop sinning, or there's judgment to come. That's true, that's right, that's appropriate. It's not the gospel, but it provides opportunities so that he can see his need for Jesus, a substitute, a savior, the gospel. Let's go to verse 15 now and keep things moving. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. I underlined Jews persecuting Jesus. That's where you go, huh? Now, because we read our Bibles and we're accustomed to it, it doesn't shock us and we don't go, huh? But really, we should. Jews persecuting Jesus? The one whose name means Savior? I mean, if he's the Messiah, they shouldn't be persecuting him. And he just did this miraculous healing. They should be bowing down, right? And instead, because of spiritual blindness, experts at missing the point, they're persecuting him. It just shows how terrible our corrupt, perverse, sinful minds can be. Even when we have the right book. As they did. 
Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, on Saturday, on the rest day. Mentally, it makes me go back to John 1.11 in the introduction that Jesus came to his own people, right? And they, they received him not. Just shows us how backward things are. Their so-called sacred traditions had become so central that they're blinded by them. A helpful commentator, uh, Kostenberger, uh, says this uh, for clarity, just so you don't take my word for these things. The man did not actually break any biblical Sabbath regulations. According to Jewish tradition, however, the man was violating a code that prohibited the carrying of an object from one domain into another. Okay, so now at this point, um, are we going to see Jesus tone things down? Are we going to see him apologize? Are we going to see him consult the the PC handbook of Shabbat? Um, No. But it's, again, not because he's grumpy, sinister, a brawler. It is because he cares. It is because he's compassionate. It is because he really is the one. And so he is going to cause things to escalate now. Purposefully so. We already know it's purposefully because he's already sought the man out. But let's go ahead and see that Jesus is really going to to ratchet things up. Verse 17 and then 18 and then we'll wrap up. But Jesus answered them. I hear, that, I hear that sound in the background again. Dun, da dun, dun. What's that from? Dragnet? So that's like before my age even. So I'm glad my target audience is 50 and over. <laughs> Sorry, everybody else. Um, there are two things I can play on the piano. Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater, and dun, da dun, 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 da dun, 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 dun. That's it. Very gifted. Very gifted. (laughs) Point being, it's, it's getting exciting, but it's getting dangerous. For the first time, we're going to hear of planning to execute Jesus. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. My father is working until now and I am working. The controversial part is not that God is working. There's all kinds of discussion though among the Jews and there have been for years trying to figure out God's Sabbath from Genesis 2 and 3. So God works for six days and then God rests. But that begs the question, if you're a theologian, if you're a Bible student, well, how is it that God is resting? Because if God rested from everything and did nothing as it would relate to this world, this world would, would destruct, right? He holds it all together. 
So there's been all kinds of discussion back and forth that God rests from what he did as far as creation is concerned, but he doesn't rest altogether. As a matter of fact, he's resting from the original work, but he's very, very much working. That's not the controversial part for these Jews at this point in time. To say God is working, it's not controversial. God rested and God is working. Both are true. So again, that's not the controversial part. And Jesus could even argue, so I'm, I'm trying to imitate God. But instead, what's controversial is the personal aspect when he says, my father is working. My father is working. You believe God is working, but he's my father. And I am doing what he's doing. And that's where things go crazy. The Jews sometimes, it's not right to say, uh, you know, we get in trouble when we say always and never. Sometimes always and never are true, but it's risky. They, would re- they, they did see God as their father, but it wasn't common. It wasn't, it wasn't normal to talk in those terms. And usually there's some distancing. And certainly not my father. This ultra-personal. No distancing qualifiers. Again, one more historical note before we go on. He could have objected to the inaccurate Jewish interpretation of Old Testament Sabbath that prohibited work normally done on the other six days of the week. If it's something out of the ordinary, it's extraordinary, it wouldn't be considered the same. Okay? This man who had done this for 38 years, this is, this is extraordinary, this is different. But rather than taking this approach, Jesus places his own activity on the Sabbath plainly on the same level as that of God the Creator. If God is above Sabbath regulations, so is Jesus. In other words, if that, if that wasn't clear, why did I read it if it wasn't clear? I thought maybe it would be clearer. But if you need it, in other words... This is a unique thing. Jesus uniquely helps this person. It's not a violation. It's not work. He didn't even do anything, by the way. He just spoke. But on the other side of things, it's not like this guy would regularly carry around his bed. It wasn't even happening. This is a unique, extraordinary kind of thing. And Jesus could have used that kind of argumentation, if you will. Because common understanding would be you don't do on Sabbath what you normally do. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes for the opportunity to make sure everyone knows who he is. And that's why it says in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their minds, but he was even calling God his own father. And notice what that means. It's interpreted for us what that means. If he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's no question what he means. He doesn't mean one in purpose, though that's true. He doesn't mean an imitator, even though that's true. Define for us right there, making himself equal with God. 
first statement of the plot to kill Jesus because of that. Question for you. If Jesus isn't telling the truth, would it be righteous for these Jews to be plotting to kill him? Yeah, he, it's, it's ultimate blasphemy. It's, it's ultimate religious lying. That's what blasphemy is. It's the worst of the worst of the worst. But if it's true, but if it's true, then the right response is going to be what? It's going to be worship. It's going to be worship. I love what it says. If you just look ahead a little bit by way of a preview, we're just going to look at a portion of it. But in 523, it really struck me as I was studying this this week. In light of 518... Let's just jump ahead to 523 where it says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. How about that? Honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If Jesus is not God, that is a terrible statement. It's idolatry. But if Jesus is God, of the very same essence, then it's true, to borrow from John chapter 4, it's true worship. It's genuine, authentic worship. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. 18 is exciting. Okay? It's why we call ourselves Christians. It's why we come and we sing, even some of the songs we sang today, about worshiping Jesus. It's appropriate and right and fitting and true and genuine to do this. But 18 is just getting the ball rolling. I'll be honest with you, I'm afraid to go to 19 and following. But I'm excited to go to 19 and following because what we see about Jesus is mind-staggering. Okay, heart stopping to see him for who he really is. He's not the ultimate prophet. He's not the ultimate rabbi, first and foremost. He is the ultimate prophet, by the way, and he is the ultimate rabbi. But first and foremost, he is the one who's to be honored just like the father. He's none other then born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, true human being who is also, to quote old, old time Christians, very God of very God, begotten, not made. It's exciting. It's exciting. And they're plotting to kill him and they will. He will be treated like a sinner for sinners so that sinners can be reconciled and forgiven through him. It is extraordinary. If you want to leave with something today, I ask you to leave not with a big to-do list. Okay? Not with a big how-to list, but with this. Honor the Son as you would honor the Father. That 
is huge. And we'll get into it more next week, but we're going to stop for now. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what really is quite a simple story that is a, 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 a radical platform for Jesus to show love and kindness and compassion and care and then to, to, to show his power and to show that he is the one to be worshipped. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. May we, may we be worshipers. May we find ourselves worshiping Jesus, the one who is very God of very God. Thank you so much for uh, our privileged opportunity now to, to take bread and to take wine and to eat and to drink as an act of worship, as Jesus said in remembrance of him, that, that he's the faithful servant the, the faithful covenant servant who is given as our substitute. He is the true and ultimate chosen one so that we, his people, might have salvation, have redemption. Uh, Lord, as we eat and drink, may we find ourselves uh, worshiping Christ, resting in Christ, our Sabbath, because of the work that he has done for us. You're a good and kind and gracious God, and we're thankful that you've extended your mercy to us and that you've extended your grace and that here we can, we can enjoy uh, that rest because of him. In Jesus' name, amen.